Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. In this word is the hope for reconciliation in our world. We're in this teaching series on reconciliation. We have a Vision 2020 team, 12 folks set apart. They're no better, no worse than anyone else. But, you know, younger leaders in our church who are seeking and praying and reflecting, working with a consultant, looking out the next three to five to ten years here at Garfield Memorial Church. And as they've been doing their work together uh, six, eight hours a month back since April, uh, they've had one word pressing on their heart together, and it's this word, reconciled reconciliation. And so we're trying to honor that and we're digging deep in the scriptures around what does that mean when Paul, you see the tagline there in, in, our, in our sermon series, Paul says, be reconciled. They didn't have punctuation in the Greek or Hebrew language, but you can tell from the tenor of what they say where a sermon ends and where the emphasis is. And when Paul says be reconciled, it would have had three exclamation points. That we need to be reconciled with God and reconciled with one another. And we'll hear at the end of this series that then God gives us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 5. And so Pastor Scott kicked us off last week and I'm this week where we're looking foundationally back to the, to the stories of creation where Hebrew scholars, the great rabbis will tell us, God asks the two great questions at, at creation. Now, now, you have to understand this. I think this reveals something about how we read the Bible. It, we go to the Bible as a question and answer book many times, don't we? We have questions. God has answers. And so we go at it that way. But, you know, if you were with us back in our Planted series, I talked about reading Scripture as a way that it yields fruit in our lives. And it's, it's not getting hung up in the words, but it's allowing the Word to read us to wrestle with us. And when we go to the scriptures that way, we find out that more penetrating than the questions we have for God are the questions that God has for us. And so Scott looked last week at that question to Adam and Eve after the broken, fractured friendship where God walks gently in the garden and says, where are you? And Paul and Scott did such a great job of saying, we got to look at that. Where are we? Are we hiding, Scott said? Are we ashamed? Are we, uh, you know, not willing to come out from the shadows to come into the marvelous light, Paul says, of God's acceptance and love? And today we hear the question, uh, where is your brother? Where is your sister? It's a foundational question. And so I'm going to read you the story from which it comes. It's the first story that happens outside of paradise, east of Eden. Let's look at it together. It said, Adam, this is Genesis 4, made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. 
Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept the flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. You know what that literally means in the Hebrew? It says Cain's face slid off his skull. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Its desires is to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know. Cain replied, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. There was a great writer that once said that this story, the story of Cain and Abel, this foundational story, it says it follows us around like a tail. Now, this is a writer. I thought that was interesting. It follows us around like a tail. It uses the word T-L-E to be intersposed with the word T-A-I-L, like an appendage. This story follows around, us around like a tail. It goes with us wherever we go. That writer was John Steinbeck, who John Steinbeck took this story in a little brownstone in New York and wrote his interpretation of it in 601 words. And the book was entitled East of Eden. Literary critics called it his most ambitious novel. Uh, Steinbeck's last wife, we'll talk about that later, um, said that it was, he referred to it as his magnum opus. In fact, Steinbeck wrote these words. He, he said, it has everything in it I've been able to learn. I think everything else I have written has been, in a sense, practice for this. Some believe he was writing it to, as a legacy for his sons, Tom and John, who were six and four at the time, an older and a younger brother. Maybe Steinbeck was a little concerned how they would live out their lives. In the, the novel, uh, there's a, one, of the, one of the main characters is a Chinese immigrant named Lee, and Lee shares uh, with, the, with the other protagonists of the story. They are talking about Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel. And Lee says that his family, even Chinese, studied Hebrew for years just so they could fully understand the story. And when they're asked why, when Lee is asked why in the story, this is what he says. He says, because the story of Cain is everyone's story. He said, I think it is the symbol story 
of the human soul. That's a little depressing, you know, that, that the symbol story of the human soul is the story of a brother murdering his brother. But, you know, the word the murder only happens in one verse. There's 16 verses in this story. There's more going on, and we need to dig down into it. Because God is coming to Cain to help a troubled man, a troubled woman, you and I, understand his heart, her heart, your heart, my heart. And twice God comes, like a good counselor. What's Jesus called by Isaiah? He will be a wonderful counselor. And he comes with simple questions. In fact, I've been saying all day, there weren't really only two stories, two questions in creation. There's more than that. There's a third one in this, in this story. I'm going to talk about it. And that next week is a fourth one, I think, that's implied. But before, any, before he asks, where's your brother, what does God say? He says to Cain, why are you angry? Why didn't Hebrew scholars include this question in the foundational questions? Maybe because it's the only question that has never answered. When God says, where are you? To Adam and Eve, what did they say? You were here last week. We heard you walking in the garden. We were afraid. We hid ourselves for we were ashamed. When God says to Cain, where is your brother Abel? It's a horrible answer, but he gives one. But when he says, why are you angry? No answer. Too personal? (laughs) Too penetrating? We're in too much denial? We don't want to go down there? Well, God takes us there. And I would say to you and anyone out there and me, and especially during these times and when everybody's so riled up, hear God say, why are you angry? What's going on in there? And see, we think, well, it's because, you know, Cain didn't pass the test. He got a B, his brother got an A. There's more going on in the story. You have to understand who Cain is, right? Cain, uh, look, look at that uh, very first verse again. We'll look at the very first verse in this story where it said, Eve gave birth to Cain. What did she say? With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. This is, Cain, Cain comes into the world with a declaration. Cain comes into the world with a gender reveal party. Oh, it's blue. And we, we kind of overlook this stuff, Right? But in the ancient Near East, during these biblical times, to be born the first son was a really big deal. The first son was the head of the pecking order. The first son was the prize child of the family. It didn't matter how many were there. The first son was second in charge only to the father in those patriarchal times. And we know the story of the older brother and the younger brother in the story of the prodigal son. There was a lot of weight on the first son. You, the inheritance was not equal. The first son got about... 80% and the other six could split the 20. It's a really big deal. And you think you got pressure. Cain is the first son ever. And he's named by his parents. Cain, do you know what it means? It means fruitful. It means productive. It means successful. This is the one, Right? And that's, that's, that's who Cain is. That's who he's been conditioned to be. But look at what it says about Abel. It says, Eve gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to Abel. Cain gets it with the help of the Lord. Abel gets it later. He just comes along as a course of existence. In fact, if you look at Abel's name, you find out something too. Cain's name means successful. Abel's name means vapor. What does that mean? Nothingness. 
Ecclesiastes says vapor of vapors. All is futility. It means futility. So here's Cain, the productive one. Here's Cain. Even their jobs tell us something about who they were. Cain was a, a farmer, a tiller of the soil. Abel was a shepherd. Now we think, oh, those are good jobs. No, listen. You know, those little pictures of Jesus with the sheep, uh, not historically accurate. When Jesus said he's the shepherd, we were the sheep, it's not a compliment. When Jesus said he was a good shepherd, it's an oxymoron. If you've traveled with me to Israel, or if you ever do, you will find out to this day the Bedouin shepherds are at the bottom of the caste system. When the angel of the Lord announced the birth of Christ to the shepherds, they were out in the fields because they weren't welcome in the towns. And Cain, what was Adam? Adam was a tiller of the soil. Adam was a farmer. Cain gets the family business. Abel, go watch the sheep. In fact, do you remember the story of David? The call of David, the great king of Israel. Israel had a king, Saul. He blew it, so God says, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to call a new king. And Samuel, the prophet, goes down to Bethlehem, where the new king will come from, and goes to the house of Jesse and says, one of these sons will be king. And so what does Jesse do? What all they did, he sends out his first son, Eliab. Right? Eliab is a, is a name that is reserved for princes. Eliab is, is a name, if we can go to that slide, guys. Eliab is a name that, that, that means the Lord is my father, my father. He's the prized child. And what does Samuel say? Oh, surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For I don't see the way you see. You look on outward appearances, I look on the heart. And then they go through a, Israel's Got Talent, and, and, and Jesse brings out six more of his sons. The next one comes, and, and his name is, if we go to the next slide, his name is Abinadab, and then there's Shema. Shema means Jehovah, Shama, the Lord is there. These kids got resumes, folks. And God says, nope, 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 nope. And Samuel finally goes, do you have any other sons? He says, yeah, but it, we just have the youngest. See, he doesn't even give him a name. He's just the youngest. He's never called David in the story. Yeah, the youngest, but he's just out with the sheep, right? He's later. And he said, bring him. And God said, that's the one. See, when God is dealing with Cain, saying, why are you angry? He's digging into Cain to say, look at what you're doing. Here's, here's Abel, Abel, Mr. Later, Mr. Little Old Vapor, Mr. Overlooked, Mr. Misunderstood, Mr. Bypassed uh, by the family, Mr. So What He's Here. And one day they come in with the offerings and God decides to take Little Later and lift him up just a little bit and Cain gets a spoiled brat attitude and his face slides off his skull. And God says, why are you angry? Can I not do for him as others have done for you? And God not only deals with Cain's personal problem. This isn't who won the science fair. God is rejecting the whole system that creates preferences and power and privilege and pecking orders at the beginning. Outside of the gates of, of, of the Garden of Eden, in the east of Eden, in this place where now humans have got to go it uh, on their own, relying on God to try to seek reconciliation. God is rejecting this first son pecking order. 
In fact, God has a principle of second sons. If it's Cain and Abel, or if it's Esau and Jacob, if it's the older brother and the prodigal, you always got to watch out for that second son. Because God has a way of breaking Systems of human power. In fact, in the book of Romans, uh, Paul says Adam was the first son of creation. Jesus was the second son of creation. So what the first son got us into, Jesus gets us out of. So you better watch out for that second son. Because it says in that story, it, it said that, uh, that, that Cain, the God, keep going guys, that, Cain, that the Lord looked with favor, what? On Abel and his offering, But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. The Hebrew there says, on Cain and his offering, God had no respect. Not just on his offering, on Cain. God does not respect this system of elevation. God doesn't have grandchildren, just children. And God rebukes it. In fact, if you read in the old King James Version... It talks about two places. God is not a respecter of people. The more modern translations say God does not show partiality. Do you know where that comes up? Two places. First in Romans, in Romans 1 and 2 when Paul is preaching to the church, and then in Acts chapter 10. And in Romans what happens is Paul, Paul is dealing with a Roman church that is fractured between liberal and conservative politicians. He's fractured between black and white and yellow and brown and red. It is. Now, it's fractured Jew and Gentile, but that's too tame for any of us to understand. Jew and Gentile had historic enmity. And the Jewish Christians were sure that they were better than the Gentile Christians. Why? Because they were the first son. They were called. But to be light for the world, not be a light unto themselves. And God, Paul says he's, he's such a master in those two verses. He sets the Jewish Christians up. He preaches to them about the Gentiles. Read chapter 8. or I'm sorry, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following. He basically says, you know those Gentiles, how dirty they are. You know those Gentiles. Uh, they, they don't even respect marriage. They worship flying eagles in the air. They make idols. Married men go to the gymnasiums and they have sex with other married men. Then they go home to their wives. That is an abomination. Women are prostituting themselves in pagan temples. And you could just hear those Jewish Christians go, yeah, those dirty Gentiles, those terrible liberals, those horrible conservatives. Yeah, they're the problem of the world. And then Paul in chapter two drops the other shoe and says, and what about you who have been given the law but don't live by it? who look down your nose at others, who have been called to be a light to the people and you're only a light to yourselves. And he says, you also are guilty and none is righteous. No, not one. God destroys the pecking orders, the preferences. In Acts 10, Peter's up on a, on a rooftop. Peter, the Jewish Christian. Peter, the right-hand person of Jesus. Peter, the rock. And he's still dealing with all his prejudice. And God tells him to go uh, to this Gentiles and minister to them, and Peter resists. And suddenly, people come up, and here's Peter. He's the liberal, sophisticated professor at Yale, up on a rooftop writing his treatise. And they come along and say, look, you need to go to this military, veteran, conservative, right-wing dude named Cornelius' house. Peter goes there, and what happens? He sees the Holy Spirit fall on them, the same way it fell on the Apostles at Pentecost. And Peter says, read the story. I'm not making this up. 
Peter says, I now know God is not a respecter of persons. That God shows no partiality. So why are you angry? What's going on, really, Cain? What's going on in your heart? Why, why are you so torn up? Is it about me or is it about you? And then he asks that penetrating question. After Cain's anger leads him into sin, he says to Cain, are you, where is your brother? Where is your sister? He says the questions to us. And he says it this way to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Now, you know, it's kind of interesting, after Cain commits murder, we would expect when God shows up that he would have a condemnation. Cain, what have you done? Cain, you, this, is, this is an abomination. Cain, how could you commit murder? But God doesn't start there. He'll get there. He starts with these wonderful questions. Where is your brother Abel? What's God doing? He's shifting the focus of the story. No longer is it about Cain. Now it's about Abel. See, see, see Cain, uh, he was the center of his own universe. He was Mr. Productive. He was Mr. Fruitful. He was Mr. Successful. The heck with little old vapor. The heck with later. Uh, they, they, you know, he was, he was a golden child. He, was, he, he had won the, the, the prize. Where's Abel, God? You know, God says. Do you have room in your heart? Listen for this. Do you have room in your heart for anybody but you? Do you understand now when the band sang that song, why that was a sermon? I will make room for you. I will prepare for two. Lord, live in me. How do, how do we make room for God in our hearts? We make room for others. We make room for our brothers and our sisters. John said it this way. People who say that they love God who they can't see, but hate their brother or sister who they do see, are liars, and there is no love in them. God, Jesus said, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am. So as we make room for Abel's and others in our lives, different from us, but preciously created by God, just like us, our fingerprints never before, never again. This isn't about loving all people. This isn't about all lives matter. God never says that. He doesn't say, I love all people, all lives matter. He says, your life matters. He doesn't say, all names are written in the palm of my hand. Your name is written in the palm of my hand. The hairs on your head are numbered, not counted. That means God doesn't know you have 1,572 hairs on your head. It means God knows when you combed your hair, that hair number 714 fell out. That's how intricately we are known and loved. Do you love like that? Oh, I love all people. Shush. Where's Abel? Where's your brother? Do you feel his pain? Do you feel his hurt? Do you feel his blood crying up from the ground? Are you, are you willing to make room for him in your heart? Because if you don't have room for Abel in your heart, you don't have room for me. So what's getting in the way? That's what the band's saying. Is it my ego? Move it on over. Is it my, my you know, obsessions? Move it on over. Is it my political persuasions? Move it on over. Is it my prejudice? Move it on over. I may be born a racist, but I don't have to stay a racist. Move it on over. What would the world be if we had the courage to stand before the God of creation and say, Lord, my prejudice, my bias, my ways of thinking that I got it all together, move it so I can make room for my brother and my sister. Now, I fooled you all in the gospel and film series. 
when I put my multiple choice, my favorite movie was Field of Dreams. But you know the number one vote getter? Everybody thought it was Remember the Titans, and that was in my top five. And I love the scene in Remember the Titans. If you know that story, true story, embellished, I'm sure, but where schools were integrated for the first time, black and white, in that community. And the white, the players from the white team, players of the black team had a very difficult time, and their parents and everybody else seeing them even be together because there was no room. There was room for, there was a cane party, there was the able party, but no room. And they get in there, and you remember the transformational story, true story. Gary Bertier, white, all-American lineman. Julius Campbell, black, all-American defensive end. Hostile enemies become incredible friends. And in that time in the movie where Gary Bertier's in an accident, he's laying in the hospital, and he's only allowed to have immediate family come visit him. He asks only for Julius. I love that scene. Julius walks in. Gary's laying on his bed, and the nurse goes, Hey, you can't be here. And Gary goes, Hey, that's my brother. Don't you see the family relationship? (laughs) And Julius walks over, and Gary reconciles. You know what he says? Remember? He said, I was afraid of you, Julius. I was afraid of you. But I realized I was only hating my brother. See, do you have room? Who, where's your brother? Where's your sister? Make room in your heart. Move on over. A church that can do this, a church that can do this, can be a reconciling hope in a divided and polarized world. And that's the only church that I seek to be part of. So, that's the problem. <laughs> You're like, Chip, man, that's heavy stuff, dude. What's the cure? What's the cure? Let me tell you first what's not the cure. What's not the cure is what John Steinbeck thought was the cure. See, John Steinbeck thought the cure to this story was found when God said, why are you angry? If you do good, you'll be accepted. If you do wrong, you know, you'll, you'll mess up. Um, sin is lurking at the door. It's crouching, ready to pounce on you. I love it. The first time God mentions sin, it doesn't mean breaking rules. It isn't like do this is good, do this is bad. No, he says sin is a life force in you. It's like an animal crouching in the weeds. And as soon as you look down your nose, and as soon as you elevate yourself, and as soon as you think you're better than somebody else, here it goes. It's going to pounce you. And, and so that's what's in us. It's the enemy enemy. But then he says, you, can, you, you must rule over it. Right? You must rule over it. That's what our translation said. That's what John Stombeck thought. Just be a good person. Just follow the Ten Commandments. You know, do, the, do this, do this, do this. Be successful. Work it out. And... Uh, You rule over sin. And in his story, if you know the story, the the very end of the story, spoiler alert, but it'll take you 601 pages to get there. Um, There's a son, there's a father, Adam, hello, and a son named Cal. And Cal has done all the wrong things and he's done so many bad things that he actually does something that leads to the the death of his younger brother. And, And the father, Adam, is so hurt over that he has a stroke and he's ready to die in the hospital. And Cain comes in, Cain, Cal, begging for his father's forgiveness. And in the book, there's a general gesture made of forgiveness, but then the final word of the book is he gives to his son, now go rule over it, right? And it sounds good. Just be a person of high character. Make the right choices, right? Climb every mountain, ford every stream, 
right? Be, be a good person. And it sounds good, but guess what? That kind of attempt ruined John Steinbeck's life. He went through three wives, <laughs> ruined two marriages. His third wasn't very good. He had children by all different wives. He was disenfranchised from them, so obsessed with his work and his writing that he was kind of an absentee father, a cats-in-the-cradle kind of guy. He moved and moved and went and went. And in 1962, when he finally won the Pulitzer Prize, three of his children were addicts. They never spoke. And one of his sons, by the second wife, wrote a book. It's not as well known as East of Eden, but it's called The Other Side of Eden. Life with John Steinbeck. It ain't pretty. See, because he just tried to rule over it. See, if, if you try to do that, it is going to grind you into the dirt. And the, the solution, the cure we'll find in Hebrews chapter 12, where in the New Testament it says, you have come not with your degrees, not with your good works. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's going on? Abel was innocent. He was killed. His blood went into the ground. It was crying out for justice. It was crying out for revenge, for, you know, retaliation. But Jesus was an innocent one. He was a true and better Abel. Even at the end of his life on the cross, when he was killed, one of the people killing him said, truly, this man was innocent. His innocent blood went into the ground. But what did Jesus cry out for? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He took our place. He took Cain's place, and there's a Cain in every one of us. In fact, what 1 John says, God has called us to love one another, but remember the Cain that's in you. That will prevent you from doing it. Jesus went and paid that price. He answered the call for justice, and he spoke a word of grace, and that's the cure. See, I love, I love the eighth chapter of John. John tells the story of the woman who was caught in adultery and dragged out. You know the story. Threw her at Jesus' feet. There's so much going on in this story. Of course, they bring the woman, not the man. It was humiliation, caught in the act. Threw her at the feet of Jesus for judgment, and they threw her the safest place she could ever be. And Jesus, you know, they, they came out and said, hey, the law says she must be stoned. The law says this. She'd broken this, and she'd done that. And, law. and Jesus says, yeah, okay. Any of you have never lied or, you know, any of you not looked down somebody because of their um, ethnicity or their political persuasion? Any of you have, you know, done all that right and, and always, never gotten angry like Cain did. Hey, you, go ahead, throw the first stone. You know the story. Nobody can live up to that. Rule over it. They just dropped the rocks and went home. And Jesus is down there writing in the dust. I think he was down there remembering creation. <laughs> this was the finger that made the mountains now. Just writing in the dust, remembering these stories, remembering the Cain in us, remembering where are you people, remembering who's your brother or sister people. And he looks to the woman he says, a question is anybody left to condemn you? She said, no, sir. He said, watch this. I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Guess what? Religious people, they like that, they like that part. Go and sin no more. You can tell if somebody's religious. I've always said there's a big difference between being religious and being a Christian. Ask a religious person, are you a Christian? Cain, Cain was religious. He was going to take an offering. If Cain were walking around today, he'd be in church every Sunday. You know, ask a religious person, you really, yeah, go to church, pay my tithes, serve on the deacon board, go to the soup kitchen. Ask a Christian if you're a Christian, say, yeah, but it was a million of one shot. Whew. 
I was a mess, but Jesus cut me a sweet deal. And see, religious people love to go and sin no more. Hurting people love, I don't condemn you. And I would say to religious people who are trying to rule over it and just go and sin no more without hearing the first accepting, loving, affirming word of grace. It's why they get so mean. It's why they get so tied up inside. Because you can never attain it. Paul tried to do it as a Pharisee and he was breathing violence against others because the cain in him was loose and he was killing his brothers and sisters and he had no room for Jesus. And that's why when Jesus showed up, he said, Paul, why are you persecuting, not Stephen, not the Christian community, me? And Paul had to deal with that. And he found out he had to first hear the word, Paul, Chip, I don't condemn you. Invite me in. Get off the treadmill of trying to be Mr. Successful. And come and let me give you peace. And open your heart to receive others. That's the message, folks. That's the cure. And if we have received that redeeming, transforming, undeserved acceptance and love... How in the you-know-what can we go out and live like that you-know-what and bring hell to people and not heaven? That was Jesus' condemnation for the Pharisees. He said, you're just so daggone religious, you make people more worthy of hell than they are of heaven. And you stand in the, in the way of them even getting in. Lord, move it on over. Would you pray that with me? Move it on over. Think right now. I'm going to say to each of you, and we're going to close a minute and 47 seconds. Think right now, what is in your heart that needs to move over? Would you take a minute and just just think about that? Maybe hold it in your hand. You know, Henry now and used to say it's like this. And then go like this. And say, Lord, move it over. Because I want you to live in me. Amen? All right. Now, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Uh, the band's going to come. We're going to go. Uh, so I've talked about the questions. We talked about the cure. How do we cultivate this? What do we do? So if you're worshiping with us online, if you're here in person, I told the folk in the parking lot, if you're worshiping at 10 or 1130, today we're going to have our first ever after party. We're going to have an after party. Yeah, at 1 o'clock, the Browns aren't playing. They're undefeated this week. Hallelujah. Right? Yeah. They, so they gave us a Sunday off. Nothing to do at 1 o'clock. So grab your tailgate stuff, grab your food, your beverages. I don't need to know what it is. Come on in to the after party, and we're going to talk about how to cultivate this. Because the church needs to learn how to do this. Do all the one another's together, right? And learn how to be our brothers and sisters. Keeper, not their Facebook friend. Do you know what it means to be a keeper? The Lord bless and keep you. We're supposed to do that. So I'm going to give you a little tease right here. Here's two members of our church that learned what it means to be their brother and sister's keeper, to be kept and then to go out and keep others. Take a look at this, and I'll see you at 1 o'clock. You introduce yourself. What's that? You go first. Introduce yourself. Oh, uh, I'm Jason Peterson. <laughs> um, and I'm Rachel Peterson, and we have been part of Garfield Church now for about 13 years. Um, in what, 2013, um, we were pregnant, and we went through a late-term loss. I was almost almost 20 weeks pregnant when we lost our baby. And at the time we were very, very entrenched in the church. I was part of a mom's group here that met every Thursday. And then my husband, Jason and I met with um, a small group every Wednesday night. And that 
specific group we met with, um, we started early on in the church with them, and we joined the church with this group, and then we formed our Bible study. And we met every Wednesday night, and we went through different books in the Bible, and through the course of several years, we got to know those people so well. Um, and, you know, my experience with the church was a lot different growing up. Um, I had not been part of a small group and was initially a little resistant to doing it. <laughs> um, but when I got to meet the people through uh, Strength Finders and, and joining the church, uh, I kind of connected with some of the people in that group, even though, you know, I wouldn't consider them you know, age peers, but we were joining the church at the same time and we were going through the same experiences at the same time and we became really close through that. So it's hard to describe like what that feels like to to lose a pregnancy no matter what stage of pregnancy you're in. Um, it was devastation. It was, I mean, it was kind of going through a bit of hell before we saw the, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel or the rainbow, so to speak. Um, it was like one of the darkest times probably in my life, probably yours too. Um, I know that I felt like I had to be strong for her, but on the inside it was very difficult for me. And there were times where I was able to kind of talk to people and, and get those feelings out to other people without feeling like I was burdening someone else, even though it's really not what it is, but that's what it felt like at the time. The moms group, you know, being a group of women obviously reached out right away. Um, you know, we were showered in prayers that I'll probably not even realize were said for us, and meals brought to the house, um, phone calls, letters, cards, pictures. Um, you know, we came to church the first Sunday after it happened, and I'll never forget, like, mom's group surrounded us. Like, my entire family, you know, our two girls and Jason and me, and they laid hands on us and prayed, and it just... It took some of the, away some of that like devastation, just to know that people were there for us. Um, you know, our, our small group did the same thing. They just were a shoulder to cry on, a hug. You know, just how are you? What can we do? And uh, one they of were the, there. one of the things that some of the men did in the group is we, we got out of the house. We went to eat. Mm -hmm. We went to the movies. Like we did other things that outside of. You know, the church is everywhere, it's one thing to talk about here, and we did a lot of things outside of this building that really made me feel connected and better about the things that were going on and helped with that, you know, getting back to almost kind of a normal feeling. Well, I, I think that we need to be, you know, our brother and our sister's keeper because, you know, there's an accountability that comes with what we do here in church. And when someone needs you, you need to be there for them to help them get through whatever it is that they're going through. Even if you can't relate, you can help by just listening, just just being there, just praying, just understanding their situation. You know, I can never repay what they did for us, but I know God puts you here in certain places at certain times to help others. You may not know how much you've helped them by doing what you do, and being part of a community and part of a small group within a church is so very important because you never know when someone's going to need you or you'll, nev you'll never know how you touch somebody.